Welcome to the True Condos Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto. Hi, and welcome back to the show. On today's show, I'm very excited to be interviewing Alex Bozikovic. Alex is the architecture critic for the Globe and Mail, and no doubt you've read many of his articles. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, the city and the growth of the city and, and uh, a few different projects and things that are happening in the city, but most of the interview was about the um, the debate right now in the city about the Gardner Expressway, the East Gardner Expressway, and what to do with it. Alex has come out um, and written a great article very much in favor of taking down the Gardner East and uh, replacing it with the boulevard option. And uh, I'll definitely include a link to that article in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at truecondos.com slash Alex. Um, so we talked a lot about the gardener and other issues here. And so I won't take up too much more time. just want to get right to the interview today with Alex Bozikovic from The Globe and Mail. Welcome to the True Condos Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Alex Bozikovic. Alex is the architecture critic for the Globe and Mail. Alex, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Um, Alex, uh, great to have you on. Looking forward to chatting with you. Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about your background, your history. How did you come to be the architecture critic for the Globe and Mail? Well, I've been with the Globe for about 10 years now, uh, working in uh, a few different jobs, uh, mostly as an editor uh, on a few sections, including the uh, Globe Toronto section. But all the way along, I've been working as a writer as well, um, writing about architecture and then eventually about uh, related subjects, including uh, urban design. And over the years, uh, that sideline became more and more of a focus for me. It's, uh, it's a subject that I've been uh, passionate about uh, all my life, and uh, eventually that the I got the opportunity here to make that uh, to make that my focus and to to take over that beat for the paper. So what uh, what is it about? Like, what's your what's your background, or how did you get interested in architecture originally, or what was it that what it, was it that excites you about architecture and 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 that? Well, you know, this is a, a question that uh, which I, I never have a really good answer, but I've always been uh, deeply interested in buildings and in cities and in the way that they go together, uh, and I've always had a really um, strong sense of place. Um, you know, and my uh, my father was in uh, was loosely in the real estate business, and so uh, there was I always grew up with an attention to um, you know with a lot of discussion about uh, about real estate. Um, but uh, in terms of as as I grew up, partly because of what was happening in the city uh, with you know uh, a real growth in the sophistication of uh, the architecture of Toronto, uh, and in eventually you know a bunch of really. Uh, good public buildings that started to get planned and built starting in the early and mid-90s through about the, t- the mid-2000s, you know, I started to focus more and more carefully on architecture and on buildings and about the, and I became more and more interested in the culture that produces them and about what the way we build, um, sort of in the individual building or on the street or on the city level, what those things say uh, about our culture. And, you know, it just winds up being a really fascinating subject or a set of subjects, you know, everything from uh, technical concerns to uh, the history of building and materials uh, to zoning and uh, economic considerations. You know, architecture particularly really blends um, business and art and science in a way that uh, few other 
uh, few other professions and few other human pursuits do. Uh, and it's all in pursuit of, of creating places and creating uh, experiences that, that are good for people. Um, you know, and that it's that fusion of, of, you know, sort of that big sort of humanistic vision that always uh, has, has been fascinating to me. How would you describe Toronto? Like, where are we at right now? If you're speaking to somebody who's never been to Toronto, like, who's interested in architecture, who's interested in cities, like, where, how, how would you describe Toronto, where we're at in our history, and what challenges we're facing moving forward? Well, I think the first thing to understand, um, which is difficult for a lot of locals who have long roots here to understand, is that the city's going through a really profound transformation. Over the last two generations, it's grown dramatically. It's more or less doubled in population since uh, over the last 50 years. And the physical form of the city has changed so much that um, it really is a new place. You know, um, locally, we think about the city as, you know, the image of Toronto is, is of the sort of the red brick city. But that's not actually what most of Toronto looks like. And what Toronto looks like in the 21st century is something that we're still right now figuring out. And that's what I think is, is really interesting about the city, and that in terms of uh, urban design and planning and architecture, we're just um, really starting to give voice to um, what it is, uh, to, a, to a very particular kind of local vision. And uh, I think seeing that evolve uh, has, has been really interesting. I think what we're seeing is the growth or sort of the, what has been a very sophisticated culture of architecture and of urban design here, you know, and of thinking about the city uh, is really starting to bear fruit in a new set of buildings and a new set of neighborhoods that, um, that, are, that are interesting, that are very thoughtful and that have, you know, a particular local character. And it's just all coming together um, really uh, as, as we speak. You think, I mean, what makes Toronto unique in your opinion versus other, you know, North American cities in particular? Well, I mean, there's the history. I mean, if you look at Toronto and compare it to other cities um, of its size, you know, Toronto is the only one that has been growing in the way that it had at, at the same velocity. Um, anywhere in the, you know, outside of the, the U.S. Uh, Sun Belt, I mean, it's the only city that's been growing as dramatically as it has. Uh, and the roots of that are in the fact that Toronto is a good city to live in, a good city to be in. And that doesn't mean just the sort of institutional strength. The, uh, the strengths of the, of the school system and of, you know, relatively good government uh, and all of that sort of thing, but also because um, the city has a sense of what it wants to be um, in urban design terms, of what the shape of the city should be. You know, we didn't, um, you know, through the 1960s, uh, we didn't get rid of all of the historic fabric or we didn't badly damage the historic fabric of the city, you know, which is so valuable now, which everybody loves so much now. Uh, and so we have that legacy of, um, of sort of moving cautiously uh, and of respecting the uh, the historic built form of the city. And what's that, uh, just what's yeah. an example of that in particular? What what you mean by that? And compared Toronto to other cities as they move through the '60s, what do you mean specifically? Well, I mean the big thing that we did was to not destroy the walkable downtown. I mean we built urban expressways which we'll get back to later, I think, but, uh, <laughs> but, not, but not too many of them. And, you know, by stopping projects such as the Spadina Expressway, we were able to preserve, you know, the 19th century and early 20th century parts of the city, you know, which were and are so important to the, to the culture of the city. Um, and at the same time, we had a good transit system. You know, that's fallen apart to a certain degree in the last 30 years, but we had a strong transit system. 
Uh, and those things, along with sort of strong public institutions and you know deliberate policy and planning decisions, really kept the fa- the social fabric of the city intact. You know, we didn't have you know the American version. We didn't have white flight. That doesn't didn't right. really exist here. And the city did suburbanize, but it didn't hollow out the downtown. And the downtown never really died. It never really fell apart. It was always, you know, a place where people lived and felt passionately about it, you know, and developed, you know, a real sort of strength of, you know, strong community institutions that have helped us, you know, make good decisions uh, and have helped um, make the city, you know, the place that uh, everybody likes today. What, uh, what do you think the downtown of 25, 30 years from now is going to look like in Toronto? Like, what, what, where do you see, what trajectory long-term do you see this city going? It's going to be crowded. I think, <laughs> I think very, very crowded. Uh, crowded you know, good or crowded bad or, or just cra- crowded? Crowded in a good way. You know, I mean, there are, if you look at the scale of development uh, that's happening, you know, right in and around the downtown, especially in the, in the entertainment district, it's nuts, you know. Uh, and it's interesting that, you know, even the city and its planning department don't, really have a handle on exactly what's happening about where the growth is going to go or what shape that growth is going to take but there are the point is there are a lot of people moving into downtown not into the not only into the neighborhoods that are prime now but into ones that are a little bit marginal around the fringes of downtown and i think those are going to continue to be increasingly wealthy which is not entirely a good thing but it's going to happen are going to be denser and you know culturally the city's going to be even more interesting than it is now and in terms of uh, our cultural institutions and at the same time retail and restaurants and all of the things that go with having you know a rich vibrant city life all of those things are only going to improve um, I think we have real infrastructure challenges in trying to accommodate the volume of people who are going to be living in and around the central city I mean there's no question about that um, but you know it's going to be it's going to be an interesting and lively and crowded place even more than it is today and i'm looking i'm looking forward to it (laughs) me too um yeah we want to come back to what you mentioned the the expressway issue obviously with the gardener but before we get to that i want to ask you what what in terms of currently existing buildings or or projects what's your favorite sort of building in the city or favorite uh series of buildings or projects be it a condo or be it a any kind of building What, what what's what sort of stands out as your favorite well, the condos, is a, it's a bit of a tricky question because there have been, and I think most people would share my opinion about this, there have been a lot of okay buildings, you know, and a lot of bad buildings and very few really great ones. Um, I think when you look at uh, condo projects, there are really two varieties. There's sort of the real showcase project, um, you know, um, the, the icon building, and then there's the other kind that sort of hangs back a little bit and is what you might call the, the fabric building, the kind of building that makes up the fabric of the city. Um, it's those quieter buildings, you know, I often think that we do well. There are a few. Um, 18 Yorkville, uh, in Yorkville, which I think both the tower of that building and, and its base, you know, work really well. Um, it's got a nice park that's integrated with the building so that the building fits, you know, very carefully and thoughtfully onto the street. Um, I think that's a really good one. Um, it's a relatively quiet building. Uh, what I'm excited about right now is um, the Project 5 St. Joseph. Uh, which incorporates um, a whole row of uh, heritage stores uh, along Yonge Street and puts up a new and very handsome, I think, tower behind that. I think that conversation between, 
in both cases, I think, you know, you're thinking not just about the shape of the building, but also the way in which it fits onto the block and the way in which it interacts with the, the, the other buildings around it, um, old and new. And you get in both places, you know, a really interesting result, you know, a really interesting place to, to live and, and to walk through. Um, so those are a couple. Um, looking forward, I think the Mervish Gary project, uh, I'm curious to see what shape exactly that will take. I think there are a lot of questions still to be resolved around that project, but you know, if it comes out anywhere like uh, the way it has been uh, designed so far, I think it's going to be uh, is going to be pretty spectacular, both on the skyline and both uh, you know on the on the level of the block. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the, the two buildings, five and eighteen Yorkville, both on Young Street, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, Young Street is a street that's undergone major, major, major transformation, especially in the past few years. It seems. What are your thoughts on on? Young Street and sort of where do you see that street? How how important is that street to Toronto and and where do you see that street going in the next decade to come? I think it's going to be you know downtown Young Street is going to be one of those areas that as we look back you know we're not going to understand why it was overlooked. You know it's been <laughs> you know what I mean. It's been yeah. overlooked and there are always these pockets in the city that you know have a certain reputation. Um, you know or have gone through a period of being kind of sketchy and then you know. Young Street, Young Street's been been known as sketchy for a very, very long time. Yeah, I mean, really, and it's really only recently that it's sort of the reputation starting to turn around. That's true, but you're talking about you know the nineteen, the early nineteen seventies through you know about three years ago or about five years ago, I should say. So you know, it's really about a thirty year period, and there was you know for uh, close to a century before that, you know, it was Toronto's main street and Toronto's really Toronto's hub, uh, and I think you know. It, what's happening there in terms of new development is mostly very positive. I mean, Ryerson has done some good things to improve uh, the state of the, the state of its campus. The new Ryerson Student Learning Center is a spectacular building. Um, I'm going to be writing about that soon, uh, and I think that really sort of raises the standard for um, of the, for architectural quality and other projects around it. Uh, there are some interesting buildings there. Another one, the the Massey Tower condo project, which is doing again really interesting things with heritage, uh, mm-hmm. and really complex, uh, fits into its block in a really complex way, and also does a really um, what I think is going to be a beautiful, very contemporary tower on top of it. You know, there are opportunities there um, for good developers now to do really interesting things, and we're going to see some of that. We're going to see some buildings that are less good, but I think, you know, the, the sort of the, the stigma that that area had um, is is going to disappear, uh, and it's going to be, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to feel, and it's going to, in a sort of symbolic sense, be as central as it is in a geographic sense. Like what, how, how do you, what do you, how do you describe the future of Young Street? Is it sort of like a linear... Yorkville, like, a, do you think do you see it going in, in a high-end sort of Yorkville type of direction, all up and down, or do you see it as becoming like more like an avenue, or like, or is it something unique that we that you can't really compare it? It's just it's got its own sort of energy. Well, that's a good question, but that gets into this weird thing about Toronto that when you talk about neighborhoods, you're often talking about a street, right? That keeps going and it's linear and it goes on for a long way. You know, if you like Queen Street West, for instance, people talk about that as a neighborhood, but it's really like a you know four kilometer long or five kilometer long stretch of street, which is you know it really passes through many neighborhoods. Exactly, but it's a neighborhood into its own. Exactly right, or sort of a series of neighborhoods that are kind of vaguely tied together. And Young Street downtown is you know there's. 
a lot of large-scale development happening there now, uh, some of which is going to be really good and some of which is not. And I think you're going to wind up with it being a um, you know more residential than it is now. And obviously, the commercial piece is, is not going anywhere. The Eaton Center is not going anywhere. You know, the street, the the street-facing retail along Young, a lot of that is going to to remain as it is, and it's going to be a little bit more um, more residential uh, and not sort of purely commercial and office space. And I think that's going to be positive. You get a different vibe and a better vibe in a neighborhood when you really have a mix of uh, of people living there, working there, using it at different times, bringing different things to it. Um, I think it's only going to become more more pleasant and more comfortable. Shifting gears to the gardener, mm-hmm. um, I know you've you've obviously come out very much in favor of removing the gardener. Um, it's no secret, and uh, we'll have a link to your your article, your great article, in the uh, show notes for this episode. But before I get into sort of obviously your side of the story, um, as far as you can tell, like what are the what is the argument for keeping the gardener? Well, there are really two options at play uh, now. City Council is going to be looking at two choices, one of which is uh, called the boulevard option and one of which has been called the hybrid option. Now, let's start with the hybrid option because that's the one that is uh, that involves basically rebuilding the gardener as it is. The name is a bit of a faint. Uh, you know, that comes from uh, a process uh, that played out over the last couple of years uh, when the developer's uh, first golf um, suggested a new way of keeping the highway in place at its connection with the, the keeping the DVP in place and its connection with the gardener, but moving it. So it would have been, you know, in some ways a, um, a compromise that allowed um, better use of that area. But in effect, what we're looking at now is the hybrid, which really means rebuilding the highway as it is, um, or the boulevard. Now, the case that the mayor has been making for the, uh, the hybrid option really comes down to traffic. The argument is that we just can't afford to lose a highway connection into the downtown. And that's more or less how it's been stated. Uh, and that the cha- that changing it, that tearing it down and rebuilding it as a boulevard, um, is going to have negative impacts on congestion, not just there, but across the city. That's the only real argument that there is uh, for, for, for making that move. It's really all about traffic and really all about protecting a highway that already exists. But, you know, um, the mayor has also made some other arguments and said that uh, in passing that you can create great urban design by working around the elevated section of the gardener, by building underneath it, by putting park space underneath it, you know, which is just, in my view, is just nonsense. But I think really what it's about um, in, in political terms, there's no question that the, the central issue is traffic. And I think that argument, uh, and a lot of very smart people are convinced that that argument is just a red herring. It's just false. Um, so let's get into your side. Let's get into your opinion. What, what, are, the, what are the key reasons why you have come out and said that uh, removal is the best option for the city? Well, I mean, I should say, first of all, that I'm far from alone on this. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, among the people who, uh, you know, who favor this option, the remove or boulevard option include, um, it sounds like the city's own consultants quite clearly, uh, the city's medical officer of health, uh, the current chief planner, Jen Kiesmat, the former chief planner, Paul Bedford, uh, the former mayor, former mayor, David Crombie, uh, and, and a lot of other uh, very knowledgeable people in the fields of, uh, of urban design uh, and architecture. But you know, if I can summarize the argument, you know, by doing the, the removal or boulevard, what you do is this. You take the DVP where it, meets the, where it meets the gardener, and the DVP curves around 
and comes down to the ground, and instead of merging into the Gardner, it merges into Lakeshore Boulevard. Lakeshore Boulevard gets expanded by a lane on either side, so it can carry more traffic than it does right now. And so uh, people driving from the DVP can take that road, that new Lakeshore, uh, with a few stoplights, four stoplights added, uh, and otherwise continue on their way. So in terms of the, the impact on the movement of traffic, it's minimal. You know, the city studies show that it's going to carry the same number of cars exactly as the Gardner does right now. Uh, and the only real impact is going to be quite small, um, you know, additions to people's commute times among the people who use that road. And that's a very small number of people. So, you know, the traffic impact is going to really be quite minimal. And I think that there's a lot of mis- misinformation about this. I think a lot of people have the idea that, um, you know, the highway is just going to be torn down and traffic will just be left to scramble, which isn't the case at all. But to come back to why I think this is important, um, if you do that, you turn, bring the highway down into the boulevard, you get a ton of positive impacts. First of all, it's a lot less expensive. You know, by the city's own reckoning, doing that is going to cost something like half a billion dollars less. Over the term, over the long term, because rebuilding an elevated expressway is more expensive. It's more complicated. It takes longer, and then you rebuild the expressway, and it costs more money to run. You build a road; it's cheaper. But what you also get, and this is what gets me excited, is that by doing that, you open up a lot of land in that area, which is right on the waterfront, right at the foot of downtown, for new development. And the way that looks, if you do the boulevard, if you go with the boulevard option looks dramatically better. You've got more space for redevelopment, which includes a lot of land that the city owns and will very profitably be able to redevelop. And you get to carry out the plan for that area, um, which includes parks along the waterfront instead of parks on the waterfront underneath an elevated expressway. And you get something like 12 more blocks of area that can be redeveloped uh, and generate a lot more money and build a much more attractive neighborhood. Uh, You know, it really has the potential to be the next step in what Waterfront Toronto has been doing in building new neighborhoods along the eastern waterfront. And the results, I think, you know, if we do it right, could be beautiful, just as the Waterfront Toronto projects uh, to date have been. Now, devil's advocate, I mean, it's it's a great idea to talk about removing elevated expressways to build new neighborhoods, uh, develop real estate that doesn't currently exist. Um, but with Toronto's sort of track record history, as you've alluded to, of, of poor transit and poor decisions around transit and infrastructure is this a recipe for disaster potentially where we're removing a major artery or at least a section of a major artery of of highway um and as the city continues to grow more people are added more cars are added uh is this a recipe for disaster if if uh if it's not also accompanied by a, a transit plan to to move this new neighborhood around the city? Well, to answer your question directly, no, it's not a recipe for disaster. The fact is that the Gardner East carries very few people. It carries something like 3% of all of the commuters going into downtown Toronto on a daily basis. Whatever you do with that number of people is going to have a minimal impact on gridlock other than in that particular area. And even in that particular area, no one's talking about taking the road away. No one's talking about taking away road capacity. In effect, what you're doing is just rearranging the streets and adding four stoplights, which is why the city's own studies show that, you know, the impacts on traffic will be quite small. So, you know, but in the broader picture, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons to assume that 
the demand for 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 driving and for highway driving in particular is going to drop. I mean, I don't think that if you look 30 years from now, there are going to be a lot of people who are choosing to drive from Don Mills or from North York to <laughs> to their offices on the doorstep of Union Station. Why? Because, you know, there are a lot of demographic trends that show us that people who are now in their 20s and early 30s are not as interested in driving cars as people who are older than them are. I mean, that's a fact that's playing out all over the Western world. Um, you know, and more importantly, you know, people like to take transit and they're going to like to take transit more because the roads are going to be overcrowded. I mean, whatever you do, downtown Toronto is going to be in terrible gridlock <laughs> a generation from now. There's nothing we can do about that. You know, and the fact is that the only way that you're going to address when I say there's nothing you can do about that, but you can. I mean, what you can do is build a ton of transit. And that's right. the only thing that's going to really reduce traffic on the roads. Large scale building of new transit that gives people good options to take transit into downtown and to get around the city so that they will do that rather than taking their cars. And I think there's no question that that is going to happen in some way or another. Uh, and, you know, putting and we can spend money on that much more cost effectively than we can in rebuilding what is a small piece of expressway, you know, at a cost of five hundred million dollars to serve something like five thousand people a day. <laughs> Uh, why don't you tell us how you really feel? Um, but uh, you should hear uh, Paul Bedford, the former chief planner, about this. He's just, uh, you know, he he is apoplectic yeah. about this, and you, know, you can't blame him. People have been working, you know, for forty years to make this a better city, and this decision, you know, in very clear ways, works against a lot of the good the the good work that's been done here. So, yeah, maybe elaborate on that a bit. What is at stake, in your opinion, and the opinion of you know the planners and people who've come out against the maintaining the the hybrid option? What is at stake? Like, what would it really be that bad if we just maintain what we've already got? What do you What do you say to that? Well, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Uh, you know, the city will go on, uh, and the redevelopment of that district, which the city calls the Keating Channel District, is going to happen either way. You know, the only thing is that you know we will have wasted a whole pile of money. Number one, uh, and number two, uh, that neighborhood when it gets built out is going to be a lot less pleasant than it would have been, and that is going to affect people's quality of life for thousands of people for generations to come. And it's also going to uh, cost the city a lot of money in ways that haven't really been accounted for yet. You know, the loss in, in uh, de- revenue from development for the city itself, never mind, you know, the long-term thinking about the, the, the property tax impacts of, you know, more and better development. You know, the city up front is going to lose something like $140 million on the value of its, of its own lands by doing this. Um, so, you know, you're looking at a worse neighborhood, you know, uh, you're looking at a lot of money. Uh, and you're looking at a lot of unexpected um, expenses down the line as well. I mean, I think we need to talk to talk about, as the city hasn't really done, about uh, what they're going to need to do to execute this this hybrid option, which is going to involve either expropriating or buying uh, land from the developers who own uh, property right next door uh, at Lake Shore and Cherry. And, which uh, is the, the Keating District area is what you're referring to? That's right. And there's a group of developers there called 3C, um, which is led by uh, Castle Point uh, Realty Partners here. Uh, and they've been working on a very big development. The number is, I believe, two and a half million square feet that they have zoning for now. Um, and they've been negotiating with the city for something like three years to get the details of that. Now, this hybrid proposal came out of nowhere in the last couple of months and surprised them uh, because what will happen if the city builds that? Essentially, the hybrid proposal keeps the highway the way it is but adds two new ramps off at Cherry Street. And where those two ramps, which are long, are going to land is right in the middle of that property that 3C owns. So it's going to impact, take away two blocks worth of development land that they own and impact a couple more. 
it's also going to make it a you know crummier piece of city for the people who live there. So I think you know the developer's interest and the public interest is really aligned in this case. But you know they're going to get hurt and they're going to want some compensation. You know, I mean, Jane Papino, who's their lawyer, who's one of the top development lawyers in Toronto, you know, spoke to um, a committee of city council a few weeks ago, and they asked her, you know, what is the value of this for your clients? You know, what's the value? And she said, huge. You know, I mean, realistically, the number is in the tens of millions, you know, and the city is going ahead and thinking about making a decision of this scale. And they hadn't even figured this in. They hadn't even calculated this, that they're going to be, you know, stuck negotiating or with, you know, some very smart uh, people with very good lawyers, you know, on the scale of... Who are know, already three years into a process. Which is almost finished, you know, and the city knew, per, their city staff knew exactly what was going on here. The city's been talking about this for three years, and yet somehow the policy that's being crafted doesn't take that into account. I mean, it's just bad governance, it's bad policy making, and that result there, you know, which has kind of gotten a little bit lost in this debate, that piece alone is going to cost the city minimum 40, 50 million. So it could easily be way more than that. You know, and the fact that we're talking about making a decision of this scale and there's a variable that big that's not even being, you know, that hasn't even been factored in, she really just says so much about how this decision is being made. You know, this is not about policy. This is not being driven by good policy. If it was, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So let's, let's jump ahead to the future. Let's say the gardener does get removed, uh, the eastern portion. Do you see a day where eventually the entire gardener expressway could be gone? From Toronto, where do you see the the bigger picture, the whole Gardner Express? Because we have a lot of debates over the years about the entire thing, and eventually we're going to be having the same debate over the western portions as as it starts to fall apart and as the repair bills start to stack up. I'm not sure that we are. Uh, you know, I think that train has more or less left the station. Um, you know, in the long term, certainly. I think in the long term, I think it's very possible that that's going to happen. But you know, this debate has been going on for you know 15 years now in a meaningful way, uh, and. What happened along most of the Gardner is that uh, the city has assumed that it's going to stay up uh, and the development that's happened there has happened around it. And that's going to be pretty hard to undo. I mean, you could do it. You could bury the Gardner, uh, which I think, you know, would actually be a good idea. I think it would be a very good idea, but it's hugely complicated, hugely expensive. It's not going to happen anytime soon. You know, so really what we have now is a choice about what to do with this one piece, you know, which is underused which is falling down and which is in the way of some, you know, potentially great development and on some very valuable land, you know, and we have what is really a straightforward choice about what to do with it. Um, you know, and I just hope we wind up choosing the, uh, choosing the correct option. Um, a lot of information, some of the misinformation going around about this issue, I think, on both sides of the debate. Uh, there's, there's a lot of misinformation on one side. I mean, let's be clear. <laughs> the, no, let's be clear about this. I mean, you know, the mayor has been making a case for this, you know, for what I think are very clearly political reasons. And he's been saying that gridlock in Toronto is terrible and we can't make gridlock worse. He hasn't said anywhere along the way that, you know, this project is going to affect the drives of 3% three, 3 of commuters into downtown Toronto which is the real number. He said, well, gridlock is terrible everywhere. Congestion is costing Toronto billions of dollars a year, all of which makes it sound as though this is going to have a huge impact. It isn't. It just isn't. I mean, there is nobody who knows what they're talking about who believes that this, this decision is going to have a big impact one way or the other on traffic. It's just false. And the other, you know, the other major argument that we've been hearing from the mayor and the few people who are with him on this is that somehow this is necessary to open up new development land. Um, we haven't talked about what's happening on the east side of the Don, uh, 
Um, we're talking about the zone around the, the foot of the Don River. Mm-hmm. And on the east side is this big um, piece of land, uh, the former Unilever site, which is now owned by uh, the commercial developers, First Gulf. Yes. Um, they have a proposal to redevelop that in a pretty dense way. The mayor is committed to it. I think it's a perfectly fine idea. And both of the two proposals for the gardener that are on the table right now would open that land up for development in just the same way. There is no difference between them in that respect. Right. You know, and that's what we've just talked about here are the two arguments that we keep hearing about why the gardener needs to stay up. They're both false. It's as simple as that. Um, so as Torontonians, like, what would you say to the Toronto Center? What questions does the average Torontonian need to ask their counselor or what question do you wish people would, would ask themselves about this debate that they aren't asking right now? Or what, what do people need to know that they're not hearing from, their, from the mayor or from, from their counselors? Well, I think, number one, if you don't actually drive on that stretch of the Gardner or of Lakeshore underneath it, and you are concerned about traffic, I really suggest that you go. Because, you know, the numbers that the city throws around about how many people are using this highway, they're, they're small numbers. You know, it's 5,000 people an hour during rush hour, which is a tiny number when you think about how many people are riding on like the King Streetcar, you know, which is three times that, um, you know, four times that during, uh, during, uh, during rush hour. But, you know, the point is, the numbers tell you a story. Going to look at the thing tells you the same story in a much clearer way. The road is empty. You know, I think it's really worth going to have a look at it or to look at um, some of the images and video that people have been capturing from the city's traffic cameras that show what it actually looks like during rush, rush hour. hours. Yeah. It's empty. I mean, it just is. You know, the idea that this is an essential piece of infrastructure really depends on mm-hmm. the idea that it's full and it's not full. It's never full. I think part of the issue might just be, like you said, it's only 3% of people are familiar with it. So that means 97% of people aren't on the road. That means 97% of people don't realize that this section of the gardener, which is a transition between the DVP and and, and the gardener itself, uh, it is not, it's, this is not the gardener of, of Gardner and Spadina. This is not the DVP of DVP and Eglinton, which is perpetually a parking lot. This is, uh, as somebody who, who does drive that section quite a bit, I can, I can definitely agree with that, that I am never slowing down ever on that section of, of the highway versus, you know, again, DVP and Eglinton. When you think of Don Valley Parkway, you think of, of something like that. It's always backed up. When you think about the gardener and all the issues with that, you think about gardener and Spadina or, or gardener and, uh, you know, by the CNE or something. And it is very, very trafficked and, and very heavy most of the time. But this section here is not like that at all. No, it's, it's funny. And, and, you know, you really do have to have to know it because if you drive on the gardener, it's, you know, your commute is not fun. <laughs> you know, I get that. But if you drive on the gardener from the west, you're probably getting off at Spadina or at York or Young, you're probably not going to keep going because most people don't. And if you're coming down the DVP, you're probably getting off to go into downtown at Richmond, which is how most people drive well, who take the DVP. Very few people actually ride on this piece in between. And so, you know, it really, this, this conversation is really, um, on a political level, this is really about symbolism. You know, it's not about the road. It's, you know, people are hearing that we're going to take down a highway, and that makes people upset. And, you know, I drive in this city, I drive downtown, and I understand that frustration. But... You know, you have to look at, you really have to understand the details of what we're doing here and what we're looking at. And you really have to understand the data because it just does not make sense to pour a ton of money into rebuilding what is, you know, an underused, relatively empty piece of infrastructure. Alex, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great uh, conversation with you. If people want to get a hold of you or, or find you online, what's the best way to do that? 
I'm easy to find at the Globe and Mail. If you go to the Globe and Mail site and search for my name, uh, you will find me. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Alex Bozikovic. Great. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. Okay, there you have it. That was my interview with Alex Bozikovic from the Globe and Mail. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope that was informative for you, especially if you're living in Toronto, if you're a citizen uh, resident of Toronto, and you are thinking about um, the gardener yourself and, and what side of the issue you are on and uh, what, uh, you know, if you want to speak to your counselor, I definitely recommend that to let them know what you think you, they, that the city should do with the Gardner uh, Expressway East. Obviously, Alex makes a very compelling case to remove the um, Gardner. So there you have it. Uh, once again, for the show notes on this episode, head on over to truecondos.com forward slash Alex. And you can find links to uh, everything that we talked about on this episode. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, have a great week.
Thanks for listening to the True Condos Podcast. Remember, your positive reviews make a big difference to the show. To learn more about condo investing, become a True Condos subscriber by visiting truecondos.com.